Gumption. Defined as initiative, aggressiveness, resourcefulness, courage, spunk, guts, common sense, and shrewdness. Welcome to the podcast. This is Stories of Gumption with your host, Ryan Lee. Ladies and gentlemen, here it is, Stories of Gumption number 12. We are at episode 12. Man, this thing is flying. We've had so many great conversations thus far. I'm really excited to have this one as well coming up, and hopefully you enjoy it. But uh, we're having conversations, conversations with entrepreneurs, creative thinkers, and in my opinion, just really, really impressive people. Thank you so much for all of you who have been tuning in thus far. Maybe this is your very first episode, but maybe you've been there since the very first episode. I sincerely appreciate it. I really do. The feedback that I've been getting on this podcast is superb. Keep it coming. I love the feedback. I love making it better for you, the listener, and hopefully we will continue to have great conversations with really, really impressive people. Uh, don't forget, if you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast, and you can get an update every time a new episode comes out. Uh, I personally like CastBox, the app CastBox, uh, and also uh, Apple Podcasts, depending on the day. I'll use one or the other. But uh, also, Apple Podcasts, in particular, has a great method for reviewing podcast. You can give it a star ranking, hopefully a five stars, but please uh, consider giving us a review. Uh, The more reviews, the better the traction on the podcast. And uh, you can do that on pretty much any platform in its own unique way, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, CastBox. But yeah, um, give us a review. Uh, Feedback is always appreciated. We love it. And uh, I'd be remiss in not saying Also, please, if you haven't already, like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Yeah, that's right. You can listen to the Stories of Gumption podcast on YouTube. Yes. So, as we always talk about, there are some sponsors to the Stories of Gumption podcast. The first one, they've been hanging on, and they just renewed for another sponsorship uh, so we really appreciate that because they didn't have to, but they've been getting some good traction. So they signed up again. Open Gate Farmstead. You've heard the the slogan, but happy animals make the healthiest and tastiest product. They're a stone's throw away from the mighty Osable River. Open Gate Farmstead is a first generation farm specializing in free range poultry, pasture raised pork, and seasonal produce. For Gumption listeners, there's a special offer. They'll take a dollar off your first order of eggs. And uh, check them out on YouTube. If you're just genuinely curious about what they're doing, what they got going on, what kind of stuff is happening on the farm, they got a great YouTube channel. They're really trying to bolster uh, the, the following of that channel because it's more than just selling their products. It's telling the story that they've got going on of their uh, their farm, uh, the farm-to-table movement that they're part of. And it's just a cool thing to subscribe to. So check them out. Open Gate Farmstead. They're on Facebook and Instagram, also YouTube. Sponsor number two. Uh, can't, I don't know what to say. These guys are awesome. Kavanaugh Realty. Kavanaugh Realty, uh, in particular, 
uh, Galen Trombley. Man, workhorse. This dude is working hard for his team, building his team, but also just helping people sell and buy homes. And that is such a huge thing for our local economy. Huge. And of course, I've said this before, there are amazing brokers and real estate agents across this region. But Kavanaugh Realty, uh, really out there fighting the good fight every day for the best possible service in the real estate industry. So their slogan, we are a local independent real estate company helping our neighbors buy and sell their homes. Check us out on the web or on social media, hashtag local matters. Thank you again to both of our sponsors. Uh, there is room uh, for more sponsorship if you're interested. Uh, I'll just give my quick plug. We're actually doing pretty good uh, with our sponsors. Our sponsors are getting uh, some some additional likes and follows and business from this podcast, which is really surprising to me uh, with it being so new. But uh, the presence is good, and, and, and sponsoring actually seems to help Help the businesses that, that are doing that, and uh, our following continues to grow on this podcast. So if you're thinking about it, you, you want to have a, a, a relatively cheap way to support this podcast, but also to get your business's name out there, give me a, give me a shout. You can email me at storiesofgumptionpodcast, all lowercase, all one word, storiesofgumptionpodcast at gmail.com, or you can send me a note on Facebook. Either one is awesome. If you're thinking about it, uh, pricing is probably the cheapest advertising you'll get. I'm using the podcast, the the sponsorship money, uh, being fully transparent, just to help myself maintain uh, good equipment and and provide a great um, great piece of content. That's what I'm using it for. So it's cheap for 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 an investment, but you can get your name out there, and uh, I'd love to have you if you're interested in sponsoring. So give me a call. Send me an email or uh, shoot me a note on Facebook. Whew. What an intro, huh? Thanks for tuning in through that. Today's guest is really gumptious. I was really excited. You know, you put together your list of, of people who you want to meet with and who you want to have a conversation with. And this guy was certainly always on the list from the beginning. Uh, and, and I just feel privileged that I, I get the opportunity to do that uh, and share this conversation with you all. Today's guest is a founding partner of Stafford, Owens, Pillar, Murnane, Kelleher, and Trombley, PLLC, in, in Plattsburgh, New York. Uh, he's a former congressman of the New York State 21st and at the time 23rd District, and he's a community advocate and a board member on many different nonprofits and organizations. He is Congressman Bill Owens. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. Yeah, yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun. I really appreciate you giving me uh, some of your val valuable time. Uh, I know it is valuable, and uh, I'm looking forward to learning a lot about you and your story of gumption. Sounds like it's going to be a fun afternoon. <laughs> so I, I, let's just kick things off because um, I'm curious. Uh, what is what is your definition of gumption? How do you interpret gumption and, and what does it mean to you? It's the ability to do the right thing when it's hard to do it. 
Mm. Yes, I would agree with that. And, and it's interesting too because prior to you, I've had eleven people on the on the podcast. They've all said something very similar. Um, but gumption, uh, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, I, I, I definitely, um, see the, the minor or the minute examples of gumptions of picking up trash on the side of the road. And then these lofty goals of doing the right thing when it's hard. And I looked up the definition of gumption uh, in the dictionary. (laughs) Nice. Uh, And, uh, I think that what I've indicated certainly could fit within that definition. Yes, absolutely. So, um, I have a lot of questions for you today and hopefully we have enough time, but yeah, uh, let's kick things off. I like to do this for a lot of the podcast guests about your story of gumption. You know, it may be a, a story when you're a kid or an adult, uh, you know, a story where you demonstrated gumption to achieve success or maybe persevere through something that was difficult. Tell me that story. And certainly in recent years, the probably the most uh, or the best example of gumption that I've experienced was in my first election when uh, it was fairly clear starting out that uh, I was not particularly well known, therefore did not do well in the polls. Uh, we then had the entry of uh, a Tea Party candidate mm, uh, who yep. swung the election uh, really away from the Republican. And so you had a scenario unanticipated of the Republican declining in popularity, the the Tea Party conservative rising in popularity, and my rising in popularity at the same time. Interesting. And staying focused and staying on message and to some extent changing the approach because we had a different opponent that we an- than we anticipated. Yeah. It required a lot of concentration and, if you will, a lot of gumption because we were trying to, to convey doing the right thing of telling the public about mm. me and what I stood for and at the same time managing this somewhat chaotic atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. That's... I can't even imagine. I mean... I've just run the, the challenge of, of staying true to your message in a, in a campaign that must be tough, especially in today's world. It's very difficult. And if you're someone like me who had no prior political experience, I had never run for public office before. So this was an experience that was brand new, but that was at a much higher level than most people enter politics in. Yeah. So staying on message, very difficult. Um, Trying to explain where you stood on issues and the reasons why Mm -hmm. um, when, again, you had this changing environment. And sometimes it would change twice during the course of a day. Wow. Where you might be getting bombarded by uh, the, the... Tea Party person on one issue and then bombarded by the Republican on the other on another issue and trying to make sure that you were 
again, staying focused and on message and responding appropriately required a lot of concentration mm. and, and a lot of literally a lot of hard work, intellectual hard work. It, it seems to me too, like the, it would be very difficult to maintain all of those points that you've got running through your head that you have to be able to pull from this Rolodex of, of statements, but also true statements of how you feel and believe about an issue, but also maintain the, the, the image that people expect. Right. I mean, they do. There is an expectation of how you should appear and act, or at least there was yeah. uh, about how a politician should appear and act. Uh, that seems to have evolved a little bit in the last two or three years. Evolved but, is a good word. <laughs> but we were trying to adhere to, if you will, the, the kind of standard um, activities and actions of a, of a member of Congress. And that's the, the focus that we had. Now, the, the people, the person we were all running to replace, John McHugh, was a, a stand-up guy. He certainly was the epitome of a gentleman. And I think that trying to adhere to that um, and is both something I thought I needed to do politically, but I also thought was the correct way for someone to behave. Yep. Yep. Um, was difficult when people are, uh, if you will, uh, attacking you and attacking you in ways that you didn't anticipate. Mm. Yeah. Kind of reminds me actually of my my background in, in scouting. I mean, uh, we can get to your child. I certainly want to ask about like your childhood and your upbringing, but uh, at least for me, uh, I've always found a lot of um, a, a lot of benefit to just remaining authentic to yourself and i think scouting the bsa program taught me a lot about that remain trustworthy you know all those 12 points of the mm -hmm. scout law and, and those types of things um i imagine you had to pull some of that for sure um but uh let so let let me ask you about that so tell me tell me about your upbringing and how it shaped you you know what kind of things were you involved in as a kid where'd you grow up give me that whole young Bill Owens story. <laughs> Absolutely. Hopefully it'll sound interesting. Um, so I was born in Brooklyn. Okay. Uh, actually around the corner from Ebbets Field. Oh, wow. And Ebbets Field was still there when I was a, a young kid. Um, after I was six years old or so, we moved to Long Island, and I really grew up on Long Island. Uh, and I did all the things that most kids do. You know, we were out riding our bikes and playing ball in the in the in the literally in the sand lots that were around our neighborhood, and there were many at that time. And we played baseball and football. Uh, we played street hockey. Yes, we did all those kinds of things that you'd find in an in a suburban environment. When I was in Brooklyn, when I went back to visit my grandmother, those kids played stickball. Yep, they also played roller hockey on on roller skates. Okay. Uh, and we played football in the street. Now there weren't as many cars, so you could actually have a game that would go on without interruption for at least five or six minutes at a clip. Oh, wow. Uh, and so I had a somewhat broader experience than many kids did because I would go back to the city at least twice a month yep. to visit my grandmother. So I was interacting with that whole group of friends and then I would go uh, to uh, back to or live on Long Island and had yeah. a, you know a group of friends there who were more suburban kids, 
one of the great stories from my perspective of growing up then was my mother used to allow her five, six, and seven-year-old son to go with the other kids in the neighborhood over to Ebbets Field and stand outside first to get the autographs of the players as they were coming into the park and then to go to stand, go stand on the sidewalk behind the right field wall during batting practice in the hopes of getting a, a ball <laughs> because if you got the ball, you got, in, you got in the game and could sit in the bleachers. Interesting. So if you walked up and presented a batting practice ball to the gate, they let you in and you could go to the bleachers. That's pretty sweet. Yeah, it was a what? great experience. <laughs> so you you're very you're very into sports as a kid. Yes. Tell me like tell me some of the lessons you gained that that you still take with you today from that. Well, I played in organized sports probably starting around 13 or so, mm-hmm. which is different than kids today they start much oh they're starting at like seven or eight yeah it's crazy we really didn't get there till we were maybe 12 13 years old and then I played all the way through college oh okay Uh, so my experiences first of all in the sandlot which is where I spent a lot of time uh, those experiences forced you to learn how to resolve conflict with other people because obviously somebody would call you out and somebody else would say you were safe. Yeah. And you'd have eight or 10 or 12 kids, and then you had to sort that out in some way. Now, sometimes it became a little bit of like Animal Farm, um, but <laughs> but in many ways you did learn, okay, you know, how, if we're not going to be able to go on with the game unless we can resolve this issue. Right. So you found a compromise in order right. to go on with the game. Now, right. That didn't always happen instantaneously. But, you know, over a few minutes of arguing, finally kids would say, all right, do over. Yeah. And you'd go back and do it over <laughs> because that was the only solution. Right. So uh, I think that was very important. Later on, uh, playing organized sports, you learn, I think, a lot about self-discipline because you got to show mm. up to practice every day. Yep. Got to get your homework done. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to live the rest of your life. Uh, you suffer defeat both as a team and individually. So you have to find ways to pick yourself back up. I think it toughens you mentally because, again, you suffer defeat. Again, it may be personal or as a team. And you need to find ways to muster that emotional and um, and uh, the gumption, the gumption <laughs> to go on. Yeah, I mean that's what it builds. It it gives you a reservoir mm. because you also understand that I lost today, but oh, I I, I won yesterday. Yeah, or and, and I still could win the championship. And I can still I can or still I win the still, championship. Yeah, or right. whatever it is. So I think that those were very valuable lessons that you don't understand mm. at that age. I don't think, at least I didn't. Right. Right, but you're picking them up along the way. So what right. you said you played in college. You played baseball in college? No, oh. I, I played football and hockey. Wow. See, this is great because I'm a huge hockey guy. I didn't know you were a hockey player. So what position did you play? I was a center iceman. Nice. Uh, now you have to go back to – I started playing hockey in for the high school I went to in 1965. Okay. Right, 1965. Now – comparatively, I was huge yeah. to the other people who were playing hockey at that time. So you were a bruiser. 
Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't want to put it that way, but uh, it doesn't sound polite power, enough. Power uh, forward. A power forward, yes. Yeah. So uh, I, I could skate reasonably well. Okay. I wasn't a great stick handler, okay. but I did bring a large body that could be plunked in front of the net while people were shooting, so you'd screen the goalie. Uh, that yep. was a big part of what I did. I wasn't that particularly um, dexterous that I was great at tippins. Yeah. But that was something, again, you know, I learned to do this. I learned to skate on Long Island when there were very few teams doing that. Um, and I had just a great experience. Played with a lot of neat guys. Uh, met a lot of the Rangers kids, the New York Rangers kids. Oh, wow. Because they lived a couple of towns away from me, and they had a team. And so we played them. Obviously, they were much better. They had they were much more skilled teams than we could put on the ice. Was this back in the day? Uh, I'm just having a vision now. I forgive my naivety, but like the movie Slapshot, where they're, wa- they're playing without helmets. Yes. And, and <laughs> oh, my God. Bill, that's crazy. So, so you'd post up in front of the net while people are ripping at the, at the gun. You didn't have a helmet on or anything? Didn't have a helmet. The only thing I had was a mouthpiece. <laughs> oh, my God. Did the goalies have a helmet? Uh, yeah. They wore masks. Okay. They did wear masks, uh, but they were not nothing like what you see it's today. It's that classic like piece of Well, it almost looked, in many cases, it looked like a catcher's mask. Right. Right? It just sat on their front of their face, and that was it. Right. Um, I mean, well, you know, you had... Guys like Eddie Jockerman for the Rangers, who, you know, I, I think he had feet of stitches in his face. Oh, my God. And one wow. of the things that I always used to get a huge chuckle out of was um, if, if you could see hockey on television back then, which was infrequent, uh, they would talk about, and certainly they did on the radio, well, you know, um, uh, Jacques Laplante was cut and they took him into the dressing room for repairs <laughs> which meant they stitched him up they stitched and sent him back, him back up out. and sent him back <laughs> yeah um, and there was not much ceremony to this uh, and now you look at it and it's like refs well so I I uh, I refed a long time after I kind of transitioned away from playing I refed high school hockey in this area for quite a while and I just it always blew my mind that there are so many, the rules have been changed so much and the equipment requirements have changed so much. I mean, you talk about the goalies having just this like basically face shield. Now it's like they can't step on the ice unless they have this large plexiglass piece oh, that around like. Around the throat. Yeah, protects right. the throat, not even, and their their face and their head. And it's like, oh yeah, it's a different game, but also the technology is different too. I mean, the sticks are flexing at a different rate and, and you know oh, play, the, it's like a whole different game completely yeah but that's true in almost every sport true everything has gotten much more scientific yep whether you're talking about bats and baseball or you're talking about helmets and other pads and football i mean it's a much more it's impacted by science and technology to a much greater extent than people think yep also my other favorite sport golf for sure Absolutely. Not hitting with wooden sticks. and <laughs> It's like some serious technology now. Do you golf? I do. Oh, see? Hockey player, golfer. Man, we should have been friends long before this, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so you went to college. You played hockey. 
you graduated with a bachelor's in uh, bachelor in business business and then you decided at some point along the way you wanted to be an attorney did you always know that as a kid or did you no. have an epiphany how did that come about that sort of gradually blossomed if you will late high school early college um, and I was also in college during the height of the Vietnam War. Oh, interesting. Okay. So uh, that's how I got to Plattsburgh. I was, as I said, in college in that 67 to 71 window. Um, I joined ROTC and I got commissioned in 71 when I graduated. And they gave me a deferment to go to law school. Okay. Which I did. Uh, and then was stationed first in Michigan and then here in Plattsburgh. Oh, wow. So Air Force. Air Force, yes. Wow. My family uh, uh, is, has a long line of, of Air Force in it. Air Force and, and some Army. Army. Yeah. But uh, I will thank you for your service, Bill. Certainly. <laughs> um, that's, that's great. So where did you go to law school? I went to Fordham Law School in New York City. Okay. Uh, and uh, began there in the fall of 71, graduated in 74. Oh, wow. So... Um, what was the hardest part about law school? The, the tremendous um, volume of information that you had to read mm. and then be prepared to uh, digest, analyze, and report on. Mm. And the way law school works, or at least it did back then, you would read these case studies, mm -hmm. and then you would be randomly called on in class to present some some portion or all of the case so in other words what are the facts what's the law yeah um, sometimes a professor would call on one person to present the facts and another person to prevent present the law so it was a it was a grueling process when I we started with I'm gonna say something in the range of 300 people oh and wow by the time we graduated it was down in the low 200s Wow, yeah, lost a lot of people in that process, and for a lot of people, they just decided they didn't, they really didn't want to do this mm -hmm. because all you were doing really was reading, mm. um, and you could spend three to six hours a day reading outside of class and still not completely cover all the material. That's crazy. It's a, it's a lot of, a lot of work. Now, I'm not saying that everybody does that much, but you could have done that. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. I have some friends who, who are now lawyers, past the bar in New York and, and Mass, and um, they were, I just hear these horror stories of, <laughs> you know, they've gotten through law school and now they're, they just, they've invested so much time and energy and passion towards this career and they're like, okay, I got to study for the bar. And uh, it just, every story sounds like just this crazy amount of studying and, 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 sometimes failure and getting back up on the horse and then going back and passing that bar. That's right. Is that the same, same similar experience for you? Exactly. Exactly. Wow. That there, there's no gumption in that. Jeez. <laughs> wow. Uh, okay. So <clears throat> you start practicing as an attorney. So when I passed the bar, I was working at Price Waterhouse, the accounting firm okay. in New York. Um, passed the bar, and then as soon as I passed the bar, I got orders to active duty. Oh, wow. And went from New York to Michigan, 
a place called Wurtsmith Air Force Base, which is closed like Plattsburgh. I was there for two years and then came to Plattsburgh for two years. Um, so I served as a JAG officer. Okay. Okay. Um, tell me more about that experience. Well, from a cultural standpoint, going from living in New York City and Long Island <laughs> yeah. to living in a place like Wurtsmith Air Force Base, mm-hmm. um, which was really in a, a, a far more remote area than we live in. Interesting. And as I used to joke when we first got there, there were more people living in our apartment building than there were in the whole town. <laughs> wow. and, and people really had a hard time getting their arms around that. Yeah. Um, and that was a little bit of an exaggeration, sure. but certainly on the block that I lived on with three or four apartment ho- houses, certainly we had more people in those buildings than were in this community. So that was a real cultural adjustment. Wow. Um, I got on active duty just as the war was ending in Vietnam, and basically we were still still dealing with the aftermath of Vietnam uh, in the in the military in terms of the criminal justice system because a lot of the young people who were being tried were f- folks who were coming back from Vietnam and had a whole series of issues. But most of what we dealt with was drug cases. Mm. People basically importing, um, albeit illegally, uh, a lot of marijuana, some some heroin, um, and there were probably a couple of other drugs, but the the primary was marijuana and, Mm -hmm. and heroin. Yep, yep. And so you're in Plattsburgh now at that point. No, in oh. Michigan. Oh, you're still in Michigan at that point. Okay. So I went. I became a JAG officer. Gotcha. Got my first assignment. Went to uh, Wurtsmith Air Force Base in Michigan, and were there for two years. Then we got reassigned to Plattsburgh again as a JAG officer, uh, and I was doing largely the same thing in Plattsburgh that I was doing in Michigan. Gotcha. And so eventually, your um, your time is you run your time. In the Air Force? I had a commitment of four years and completed that here in March of 1979. Nice. And then I stayed in the reserves for a couple of years. Okay. uh, And went to work for the firm of Fitzpatrick, Bennett, Trombley, and Lennon, which was over on Court Street. Okay. Court Street, Plattsburgh, New York. Yes. Nice. Nice. And, And at some point, I'm just trying to guess here, you met Ronald Stafford? So the story, how's how's the, what's the story? How's that play? So Jim Fitzpatrick uh, passed away in 1987 and in 1988, maybe late 88, I had a chance meeting with Ron Stafford and suggested to him that it might be in our best interest to merge the two firms. And sorry to interrupt you, but for just for the listeners who don't know who Ron Stafford is, could you give him a little? Certainly. Yeah. So Ron Stafford uh, was uh, a longtime New York State senator. He sat in the Senate for 36 years, so 18 terms, was shortly after we met and became partners, he became the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. So he was one of the top two, three, four most powerful uh, politicians in New York and certainly one of the most powerful Republicans in New York. And buildings, at least 
to my knowledge, all over Plattsburgh at the college that are named after him and his work. Yeah. Uh, So he was a guy who was well-known in the community and someone who really focused on his constituents. Mm. That was uh, not an act. It was the real deal. He was somebody who really understood how much people were depending upon him. And certainly in his position in the state Senate, it afforded him the opportunity to do a lot of good things for the communities he represented. So you met Ron. Again, let's pick that part of the story So like late 88. Okay. um, Told him I thought we ought to get together, Mm -hmm. form a new firm. Uh, By late, uh, probably the fall of 89, we were there and we merged the firms. Uh, and that firm, it was Stafford, Purcell, and Edwards at that point. And Irving Goldman, who was a retired surrogate, was of counsel to them. And we had um, Ed Trombley, John Latinen, Dennis Curtin, Bob Booth, Tom Renane, and myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, that merged us into a firm of about 12 or 13 lawyers. Okay. And we then were operating out of two buildings, the the Stafford office building on Margaret Street and ours on Court Street. This building came up for sale. It had suffered its third fire. The American Legion couldn't afford to rebuild it. Mm-hmm. So we purchased it from them, refurbished this building, and then moved everybody in probably late 89, early 90. Wow. Beautiful building sitting in here in the the conference room here at your your office. It's very impressive in here. It is. So this building was built in 1865 by a guy named Smith Weed. Sorry, 1863. A guy named Smith Weed, who was a local businessman and politician. Yep. And he, um, in this building, every room had a fireplace, and all those fireplaces were... Uh, fueled by gas, <laughs> right? Gas that was delivered through a city system to private homes. Uh, it was it was an amazing. And these the walls here, the interior walls, two brick thick. Well, yeah, I I mean I I, I walking in earlier before our podcast, and I'm I'm opening the door, and I'm like, holy smokes, this door's all there. And you get to the next one, it's like, that one's all there, too. And you're looking at how thick it is. and They just don't make it like that anymore. They don't. And those doors are original. They survived the fire. And if you look at the um, the molding in the front uh, vestibule, yeah. that's all original. Okay. Not much else really survived other than the fireplaces. Wow. That's, yeah. Awesome. Awesome building. So, so okay. So, you're... You've started your firm, uh, getting close to 1990, mm-hmm. and you're having a good time. You guys are building your practice. You're becoming a a, a, a very well respected and known uh, firm in town. And somewhere along along the road, we turn the century. I'm jumping ahead quite a bit here, but it, you be you decided. I want to run for Congress. How did that whole thing? If you're if you're so successful with this, where where did that whole piece come from? Uh, John McHugh 
my predecessor was nominated to be the Secretary of the Army by mm -hmm. President Obama, and the seat came open. Uh, in uh, probably June, maybe early July of 2009, mm -hmm. I started to get emails from people uh, suggesting that I run. I was certainly toying with it in the back of my head, but I got some encouragement from people yeah. uh, to go do this. Um, the, and this was from both Democrats and Republicans, yeah. each, each of them thinking I would run on their ticket. <laughs> that says a lot about you, though, that you were that well-respected and uh, a pre, you're, you, they wanted you as their candidate, both sides did. And certainly um, I was very appreciative and, to be frank, surprised um, and honored that people would think that way about me. It was a really nice feeling. I decided that um, although I had been an independent from the time I registered to vote until that time, uh, that I was going to run as a Democrat. And no Democrat had been elected here in 160 years. <laughs> I read that, actually. I was like, yeah, that's uh, setting an a, a interesting precedent. Yes. And so um, I went to D.C. I was vetted by the DCCC, which is the Democratic mm -hmm. Congressional Campaign Committee, and um, had some interesting experiences. Again, you know, both good and bad in the sense of it wasn't clear that I was really the guy they were looking for for quite a while. Um, and we wended our way through this process with a lot of surprises uh, from my perspective. Uh, things that I just didn't anticipate would be part of this process uh, that I was engaged in. Uh, I learned a tremendous amount just running Yeah. about how politics works. Mm. And so I know very little actually about how politics works, <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, in terms of running a campaign, mm -hmm. um, I've seen the dramatic depictions in, in TV and movies and things like that, but... Uh, tell me about the day-to-day -day, uh, life of running a campaign. I mean, you're, you're up at what time and you're going to bed? Like, not. I mean, paint a picture. So the day usually began around 7 o'clock, meaning I left the house at 7 o'clock. Yep. So up earlier than that, because I like to exercise in the morning, which I have done for most of my adult life. Mm-hmm. You'd go through the process of getting ready for the day. You'd be out the door 7, 7.30. And the day would go on until 7.30, 9 o'clock at night. I mean, it was, these were long, grueling days of travel around the district, of, you know, introducing yourself to people. And when you're an unknown candidate, the best thing you can say about the process is it's awkward and painful. Mm. because people really aren't that interested in chatting with you. Yeah. Right? Particularly, they weren't interested in chatting with me because most people said, well, we've always had a Republican here, so this guy's got no chance. Right. Right? Now, I'm talking about when you get outside of Plattsburgh. The people in Plattsburgh who I knew, sure, that was a different sort of conversation. Uh, but when I got outside of Plattsburgh, it was a much more difficult Conversation, So kind of putting one foot in front of the, the other uh, all day long in, you know, in light of, I'm going to say, mediocre responses is not an easy thing to do because you're putting yourself out there. 
Yeah. People are taking shots at you mm. and you're not really getting a great reception. So it didn't catch on until, oh, I'm going to say early to mid-October. Interesting. With the election day in early November. So it was a grind to get there. And then as the campaign heated up and, you know, the television commercials became more vicious and, you know, the attacks were just flying around the room, uh, it was hard to sort of keep your head about you and and stay focused on what your message was. Yeah. And and for the listeners, who, again, who don't know, maybe because we have listeners from all over, all over um the 21st district at the time, the 23rd, 23rd, right. And now the 21st Correct. of New York state, uh, that's pretty big. How many square miles is our, I mean, it's huge. So it, it, it's roughly 16,000 square miles. It's crazy. Which is <laughs> appara- approximately 40% of the New York state landmass. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so, t- so, it's so to, to travel around, like I, I remember when I was, uh, my first real professional role and responsibility as the, the director of the Boy Scouts in Clinton, Franklin, and Essex County only, probably, I don't know, maybe a third of the district, those three counties, or maybe a little, no. Less than that. No, less than that. So there were 12, I just, 12 counties, so yeah. 25%. I just, yeah, so 25%, and I remember spending so much time on the road getting around just those three counties, I couldn't imagine getting around the full district. Well, when I first started, the district ran from Ticonderoga, yep. a, a little sliver down along the lake, up to Plattsburgh, across to Watertown, yep. and all the way down to Madison County. Wow. And included all of Madison. So it was an enormous, enormous landmass. And parts of the Adirondacks were included and parts not. Mm-hmm. Then when it became the 21st, it was a slightly more concentrated um, land grouping, but but equal in size. Mm-hmm. So I had two huge districts uh, that I got to drive around <laughs> and spend, got a lot of windshield time. Yeah. A lot of windshield time. Yeah. Did you did you have someone driving for you so you could do the the like, well, I'm trying to think, I mean. Yeah, cell phones in 2009 were still pretty efficient, right? I mean, yes. you're, you're doing work yeah. on the road while you're traveling in between. and Well, a lot of the places, though, in the Adirondacks, there was no service. There's nothing, yeah. So you really uh, had difficulty doing much. Um, and so, you know, you would be sitting and reading. Because mm-hmm. I did a lot of reading because I needed to get up to speed on issues i need i wanted to understand what people were concerned about mm-hmm. and be able to respond with some level of knowledge to them um, and so i spent to the extent i didn't have access to the phone i would be spending time reading mm-hmm. so i would get in the car with a pile of papers um, might be a couple of inches thick yeah wow so then you eventually get elected that must have been like a euphoric feeling it was it was. Um, I, I, I will never forget this. One of my good buddies, a fella, I know two people who I still maintain close relationships with who I went to kindergarten with. Wow. And one of them is a basketball coach up in Montreal, has been for years. 
he called me about a month before the election and he said to me, um, he said, we've known one another a long, long time. He said, it looks like you might win. <laughs> he said, do you have a plan? I said, nah, I'm working on it, but I don't have one right now. <laughs> so that was, you know, there was humor yeah. as part of this process, but a, a huge uh, undertaking. And so now you win. And I, I was not sworn in like the next January. I was sworn in four days later. Oh, so wow. So I, I won on Tuesday. I was sworn in on Friday. Wow. And I started in Congress on Friday. So that leads me to one of my other questions that I'm just, if you could just describe for me what you were feeling, thinking, looking at all of the above the first time you walked into the federal into Cong the Capitol? The Capitol building, and you're like about to take your seat. A lot of emotions run through you. Uh, I was still getting used to the fact that I had won. Um, I certainly had the hair stand up on the back of my neck, not dissimilar to the feeling I get virtually every time they play the national anthem. Yep. Um, and so it was, there was a lot of emotion, there was a lot of confusion. You know, I was still trying to figure out where the bathrooms were in the Capitol <laughs> sure. for about a week. Yeah. I mean, it's it's that big and that confusing that, you know, if it's your first time there, it's like, oh, man, you know, where's the, you know, where is anything? Where are the meeting rooms? Where's the cafeteria? How do I get, how do I get from my office building to the Capitol? So yeah. that all took time. There was a lot of logistical pieces to this that took time to learn. And created, obviously, some angst and anxiety because, you know, you knew you had to be somewhere in 10 minutes and you weren't sure how to get there or how long it would take to get there. So a lot of little things. Mm. Um, the, the legislative piece, although daunting, followed a certain logic. And being a lawyer, I'm used to reading statutes. So I could follow once someone explained to me what the logic was and what the steps were. Yep. And once that, that probably took me a month mm -hmm. to sort of really inculcate that into my brain and be able to process things. But once that happened, it was a fairly easy process of creating, if you will, a syllogism that you would look at a piece of legislation, analyze it, and then reach a conclusion. Mm. What was the hardest thing or experience that you, <laughs> you, you encountered during that job? Well, to walk into Congress as they were voting on the Health Care Act mm. and the tremendous emotion that that generated, uh, there were literally tens of thousands of people on the lawn of the Capitol when you would walk from your office to the Capitol building who were generally screaming at you. Wow. All kinds of pleasant things. Um, I'm sure. Lots of, lots of, uh, have a good day. Have a good day. Thank <laughs> you very much. You're doing a great job. Pleasantries all around. Yeah, not so much. Um, so that was kind of a shock. Sure. Because I had never been in a position where public hostility had been foisted on me. Mm. It was a completely new experience. Um, and 
I thought that you could talk to people and explain your position and come to some rational understanding, and that wasn't very successful either. Interesting. So uh, that was a surprise and a disappointment to me. Mm. Um, but that was a very difficult transition to make amongst all the other things that were happening to me because I was dislocated from my family at the same time. Right. <clears throat> right. My wife was back here in Plattsburgh. She was working for public television at that point. Um, and this was a complete disruption of a life we've had here for the prior 30 years. So that took some time to physically and emotionally adjust to. Yeah. So all there was a lot of turmoil, and the counter to that was how interesting it was. Because mm. you were learning something new every day. Yeah. Because the, literally the first week I was there, I was being visited by people from the district who had an issue they wanted to discuss. So you're, you're learning all these pieces uh, of the puzzle and then trying to put them, and then like a jigsaw puzzle, trying to put them back together again. Yep, yep. Were there any uh, 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 really like amazing interactions that you had that were memorable, that were worth sharing with any like very famous politicians or anything that's like just worth well i certainly had uh, substantial interactions with speaker pelosi mm -hmm. <coughs> sorry no with problem. speaker pelosi yep met with president obama a number of times interesting um, i had interactions Great. with paul ryan and john boehner yep on a fairly regular basis yep um and you know so many of the people uh were high profile and were known on on television. I had some interaction, although not tremendous interaction with members of the cabinet, particularly mm -hmm. um, Obama's cabinet. But all of them were interesting, brought a perspective to the table, were articulate in expressing that perspective. So you learn something new every day, mm. whether it was sitting on the floor of the house listening to people speak, whether it was visiting with constituents, uh, whether it was visiting with members of the administration. You got a lot of information and the ability to ask questions. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Very unique uh, example of gumption, I would say. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, a, a funny story about uh, about um, John McHugh. Sure. I was on the Armed Services Committee. And, of course, the Secretary of the Army, he had to testify in front of the committee. Uh, and uh, so he comes in and he testifies, and it's my turn to ask him a question. And I said, um, you know, Secretary McHugh, um, we're delighted to certainly have someone from our district sitting in front of us but I'm probably the most delighted because your having that seat allows me to have this seat. <laughs> <laughs> and he chuckled and yeah, left. Yeah. And we had a we had a nice chat afterwards. Nice. Nice. And and you know that that's that's uh that's a nice story because it shows, you know, different political parties getting along. Right. That's the way it should be. 
Yep, absolutely. Um, I'm going to, just to be respectful to your time, I'd like to go to sort of my classic uh, stories of gumption rapid fire okay. questions. These are fun. So they're, they're, they're coming up quick here, uh, and the idea is just to fire away. See, see, see what you got, Bill. Uh, so the first one, what is a book you would gift to a friend and why? Moneyball. Moneyball. Yes. Um, and the reason is it's a, it's a multi-layered book. It's a book about baseball, but it's really a book about people making false assumptions grounded on how someone appears instead of grounded on how they perform. Mm. Did you ever see the movie? I did. It's a good movie. It yeah. is a good movie. I like that. I'll have to check out the book though. See, see, I get all these nice, uh, <laughs> book lists now yes, from all right. these people and I can just like keep trying to punch away at them. Uh, here's another one. Number two, if you could go back and give your 18 year old self advice on life, what would you say? I would advise myself to make sure that I thought things through carefully before I made a decision or reacted. Mm. and then find a solution to whatever problem was posited to me. Mm. I like it. Here's a fun one. Number three, if you could put up a large billboard for the world to see, uh, what would you put on your billboard? It can be anything you'd like. A large smiley face (laughs) (laughs) with the words, let's solve the problems together. Oh, that's so simple. That's so simple, but like, exactly, right? <laughs> a large smiley face. Where would you put? Would you would you put it in in New York or where you, where would you put it? I'd put it anywhere. Yeah, I'd be happy to start it right here in Plattsburgh. Do you want to just you and me? We make a T-shirt and <laughs> a big smiley. Not a bad face. idea. Okay, I like it. Uh, this is my favorite question. Every guest on Stories of Gumption gets this question. You ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. If we could assemble a three-person board of directors to coach and mentor you through the rest of your life, the quote-unquote board of directors for Bill Owens, so to speak, who would you choose? They can be alive, deceased, famous, or not, but who would you choose to be on your board of directors? My wife, a gentleman by the name of Bill Casey, who ran a company called F.W. Myers up in Rouse's Point, which was a large customs house broker and freight forwarder taught me a lot about business and, if you will, how to operate in the world, and my father. Mm. Give me a little more. Like, I mean, tell me about your father. And tell me about, so my father you know, was a World War II veteran, uh, did 24 missions over Germany in, oh, wow. as, a, as a waste gunner in a B-24, uh, came back, went to school on the GI Bill, uh, got a degree in civil engineering, and worked his entire life as a civil engineer, basically working on construction jobs. And um, he was a quiet, somewhat reserved person uh, and who, who had a good, sarcastic sense of humor uh, and uh, really helped to uh, form my view of the world. Mm. In, in very important ways. Mm-hmm. And of course, we'd be remiss in not talking more about your wife. I assume that must have been um, 
I mean, in my my life with my wife, you know, when I have very challenging things come up, or she has, we are supporting each other, and uh, that's a key to our success. I assume being a congressman and all that you had, that must have been huge. So, so the friend that I told you about in Montreal, we had Easter dinner together two years ago, and his comment to me was, "The best thing that happened to you." was your wife. You're a much more <laughs> rational person as the result of that relationship. So I think that my wife is a person who is more introspective than I am. Yep. She's a real planner. Yeah. Um, she's a very solid, hardworking human being and did a great job raising our kids. Just yep. outstanding. And I think that that's the kind of person I would want supporting me, and she does support me, yep. and I try and do the same for her. That's fantastic. Well, Bill, this has been an awesome conversation. I learned a lot about you that I didn't know, and I, I feel privileged to be able to sit here and talk to you face-to-face about it. It's It's been awesome. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. And, and as I do with all my guests, or at least I try to, is uh, I'd like to give you an opportunity to plug your business, how people can get in touch with you, uh, maybe your specialties, anything you'd like to share, now is the time. Certainly. Thank you very much. Uh, I never turn down an opportunity to advertise. (laughs) There you go. I've been doing this, I've been practicing law in Plattsburgh since 1979, so I'm coming up on the 40-year mark other than the five and a half years that I was in Congress. Congratulations. Our firm is uh, probably the largest in the area. Uh, We have the ability to do most kinds of work, whether it's for an individual, a corporation, a for-profit, a not-for-profit. We do estate planning. We do residential house closings. We do um, HR work um, for lots of companies. It's a broad-spectrum practice uh, filled with good lawyers, good people who are active in the community. And we try and respond to people's needs realistically and timely. Uh, We can be reached if you need us at One Cumberland Avenue in Plattsburgh, New York, 518-561-4400. And you can reach me at wowens at staffordowens.com. Fantastic. Bill, one more time. Thank you so much. Congressman Owens, uh, (laughs) thank you so much for your time. And, uh, I look forward to uh, sharing this podcast with the world. Thank you very much, Ryan. Have a a great time. Take care.